Dan McHugh and this is McHughniverse. In this show, we're going to explore the most popular psychoactive drug on the planet, coffee. And when you speak to coffee lovers, they always say they love the taste, they love the aroma, and they always talk so passionately about it. But there's never a real acknowledgement about the fact that they just love getting high on coffee. We are concerned not merely with the technical problem of securing and maintaining peace, but also with the important task of education and enlightenment. Think about this. Have you ever heard about the idea that we all live within a simulation? Well, I think we do, except we're all living in our own personal simulations. Our brain is collating the stimulus from all of our senses and mixing it with our emotions to put on the most spectacular show that we believe is our personal narrative, which we also refer to as reality. There's most likely an object reality, but we only experience an interpretation of it. The universe is full of patterns that repeat and replicate over and over, and you see this repetition everywhere there's life. So since this simulation is occurring for us personally, following the repetitious patterns of life, it would make sense for us to predict that simulation is happening on a larger scale. The thing is, I doubt that it's a giant computer. It's most likely a naturally occurring phenomenon. As our brain creates a nice simulation for each and every one of us, it's quite possible that the universe, or the source of all life, is doing the same on an external level. Not so long ago, I was in LA, And as a tourist, I wanted to see the legal cannabis stores they have there. If you haven't been, it's kind of like walking into an Apple store. But the only technology they have there is to get you high. But also, there was something about it that reminded me of a boutique coffee shop that I go to in Sydney. They have all these different types of coffee beans on display, except the way the coffee is sold and marketed is based on where it's from, as well as the aroma and the flavour. They don't really talk about how it will make you feel. In the cannabis store, they're all about the percentage of the THC, CBD, trichomes, the chilled vibe, the body stone, etc, etc. So this made me start thinking, as coffee is a drug, why aren't coffee types sold on how they'll make you feel, the same way cannabis is? The answer is actually very straightforward, but I needed the help of a coffee expert to explain that to me. Emily Oak, a World Barista Championships competitor and judge also a specialty coffee expert from Sensory Lab and St. Ali made it pretty clear to understand why there isn't a huge focus on the feeling between different coffee types and brands. With coffee and caffeine, it's generally a relatively generic amount or response that you'll get from it. It's never been anything that people particularly look for, although they do ask about, you know, how strong is a cup of coffee? And then you get into a lot of nuances around flavor, whether people are talking about strength or caffeine strength or other bits and pieces. So I think there's probably a lot less variation in the caffeine levels in the plants. So it's never been something that people generally focus on. There's two main species that humans consume, which is Arabica and Robusta. And Robusta generally does have a higher caffeine content naturally. There are some other strains that are grown that taste so terrible they don't generally get used for consumption. They're used for other caffeine needs, whether it's additives in drinks or things like that. 
So Robusta has a high level of caffeine in it. So if they're using that to brew the coffee, you will be getting a little more caffeine. Again, if they use a large volume of the coffee, then you're going to get a higher concentration. And I know, I know that the more coffee you drink, you do build up a tolerance. So the more you then require to get to the same level of zero, I guess, or bring yourself back to that zero. And if you're a regular coffee drinker and you skip a coffee or a day or two, you will have withdrawal symptoms, without a doubt. The answer is pretty straightforward. Coffee just doesn't have the variables of compounds that cannabis has. The psychoactive component of coffee is caffeine, and when it comes to cannabis, you have THC, CBD, and a mixture of other chemical compounds that change the effects of the high. So just now, Emily mentioned withdrawal symptoms. And it's estimated that 64% of Americans drink coffee every day. And in Australia, that number sits up at 75%. There are more than 2 billion cups of coffee consumed on Earth every day. Imagine if coffee just suddenly disappeared and we had two-thirds of the global population jonesing for a cuppa. It would almost be like a zombie apocalypse type scenario. Anyway... Apparently, coffee is actually somewhat under threat for a variety of reasons. It's been projected, I think, 2050, they were basically saying that if we continue on the current path, we will get to a point where supply and demand sort of flip and there'll be price spikes, there'll be issues with coffee. And it's one of those things that even in a very interesting time, downturns, depressions, wars, COVID, whatever you want to call it, coffee is one of those things that people just don't stop drinking. It's a luxury that people don't give up. And like many other industries around the world at the moment, coffee is under threat from things like climate change and increased consumption. Globally, there's a very, very small genetic diversity. So if there's one particular disease that could could wipe out the entire industry, It does happen. In Guatemala a few years ago, they had a problem with a disease called rust, which decimated their the whole crop for the year. So, yeah, it's an interesting scenario. And, you know, a a tiny change in climate, which we're seeing, is that coffee has – it's very fussy about where it grows. It needs a long, hot winter to mature. So coffee takes about nine months to mature on the tree. It's a cherry on a tree. It doesn't like humidity. It doesn't like too much moisture or not enough moisture – Uh, It's difficult to harvest and it grows at high altitude. (laughs) It's not a crop that is particularly easy to grow. So as we lose land to climate change, it gets hotter and more humid at lower levels. We need to go higher to grow it. And there's only so far we can go into the sky before we run out of land. There are all sorts of research studies on coffee and how it's actually pretty good for you in terms of heart health, a lowered risk of type 2 diabetes, lowered risk of Alzheimer's. The list goes on. But whilst talking to Emily, I noticed she kept saying that all caffeine does is block the receptors in your brain that make you sleepy. If you've listened to earlier McUniverse episodes, you'd know that preventing sleep is not as harmless and innocent as you might think it is. Sleep is arguably the most important thing we need to stay healthy, maintain mental health, to fight off stress, to fight off inflammation and cancer, the list goes on. So I'd make the presumption that anything we do to mess with our sleep cycles probably isn't good for us. I have a personal theory on coffee. I think it makes us focus on things immediately in front of us. It's kind of like putting mental blinkers on. It's the perfect drug to keep you working and keep you productive without being interrupted by new ideas or questions like, why am I doing this? After speaking with a few friends 
Apparently, this idea actually isn't that original. And so, here's an excerpt from the late 80s TV show Thinking Aloud, where psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove interviews Terence McKenna, an American ethnobotanist and advocate of psychedelic plants. Who can imagine modern industrial office culture without coffee? These are major drug dependencies that have placed their stamp on the lives of millions and millions Mm -hmm. of people. It's simply that we choose to linguistically define it in such a way that the effect is not something most people are cognizant of. I think coffee is a very interesting example because when it was first introduced into our culture, as I understand it, was considered virtually a hallucinogenic drug. Oh, yes. When coffee was first introduced into Western culture, uh, it was associated with certain establishments where loose women and loud music were available and the bohemian literati would gather and drink coffee and talk into the night. And it was considered quite a uh, risque thing to be involved with. That's right. I managed to find a couple of really interesting research papers about how coffee might affect your mental outlook. The first research was conducted by Dr Pearl Martin from the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. And the study conducted showed that people are more likely to listen to opposing arguments and change their minds when under the influence of caffeine. A direct quote from Dr Martin is, Given the numerous situations in which people are exposed to persuasive arguments these results could have many applied implications. The second study I found was led by Professor Simon Crow, and they looked at how caffeine use combined with stress was linked to psychotic symptoms. I was fortunate enough to get him on the phone. Caffeine, which is obviously the active constituent of coffee, is a stimulant, just like cocaine or amphetamine or any other of a number of different forms of stimulant. And as a result of that, it causes behavioral activation, affects a number of things. It includes waking you up and sharpening you up, contraction of blood vessels, causing a release of urine, bronchoconstriction, inhibition of acid supply, inhibition of fat breakdown, all kinds of things. So it's a it is a stimulant. It's a drug. It's just like any other stimulant drug, and it affects lots of things. And so, treating it as if it's you know something like you know muesli or any other product off the shelf, tomato sauce, really undermines the degree to which this is a, a psychoactive drug, like any of the other stimulant category. I asked Professor Crow about his studies on caffeine and what exactly was done to link it with psychotic symptoms. What we worked with was a task which is called the white Christmas paradigm. In essence, what it involves is uh, we play you white noise and just before we play you the white noise, we indicate to you that you might hear during this white noise, white noise, which is like a static hiss from, you know, kind of like a television. And when the white noise plays, people are instructed to press a buzzer when they hear any of the music from Bing Crosby's White Christmas occurring within the white noise. And what we found was that people who have high levels of stress and drink high levels of caffeine, about four or five cups per day, are more likely to report that White Christmas plays in the white noise than people who don't 
have those features, they're more likely to detect signal. And so they are in a heightened state of activation, if you will. And the interesting thing about it is White Christmas never plays. And so they are more prone to be misled and therefore more prone to believe in things that aren't necessarily the actual account of events. Uh, So we were interested in this phenomena because we're interested in the development of schizophrenia, particularly. Schizophrenia comes about as a result of too much dopamine within the circuits of the brain. And caffeine also produces facilitation of dopamine in that circuitry. So what we were interested in is, are people who are heavy users of caffeine suffering from hallucinatory experience, like people who have got schizophrenia? And the answer to that seems to be yes. You have to you have to drink a fair bit, five cups of you know cappuccino or whatever, whatever is your particular poison per day, and have a high stress level. But also uh, the the paper by by uh, Martin uh, indicates a similar kind of thing uh, that higher levels of persuasion can occur for people who are given doses of caffeine. They are prepared to believe. They are more susceptible to being influenced when they have high levels of caffeine on board. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I love coffee. The smell, the aroma. For me, meeting a friend for a coffee is more enjoyable than catching up for a beer. But I wanted to find an alternative. I mean, my chat with Professor Crow didn't put me off the drink because I don't have five cups a day, but I just wanted to see what else is out there. So I got in touch with Ray Thorpe, the founder of the Happy Herb Company. He's extremely knowledgeable, and when it comes to alternatives for medicinal and recreational drugs, he's like a living library. When we spoke via the internet, Ray was sitting on his balcony with the most picturesque view of Mount Warning and its surrounding rainforest in the background. I asked Ray what he thought might be some healthy coffee alternatives. So I'd recommend ashwagandha that gives that coffee feeling. I just had Jing earlier this morning, which when you drink it, you forget that you're not even drinking coffee. And that is probably the best coffee replacement because it has that slight bitter but pleasant taste of coffee that we all enjoy. Um, But that's mainly made of mushroom and cordyceps. Makuna Fruyens is a good one because that's a mood lifter and a stress reliever one. So I even feel the Garana, which has got such a bad rep, actually is such a good herb. It gives you four hours in normal doses. It'll give you four hours of energy, but it gives you a more of a bodily energy, whereas I find coffee, can uh, you, feel, you can feel it around your heart. It's... Uh, but the consistency of Coca-Cola Suma mixed as you would as you would coffee with milk or just straight was not only satisfying, but all day you had a stamina. Ray mentioned a bunch of interesting herbs that probably need further explanation. So if you're interested, I'll pop some links in the show notes for you to further investigate. It's really worth exploring the variety of herbs available to help with your health and well-being. These days, it's quite common to throw a combination of herbs, such as the ones that Ray just mentioned, into a smoothie, and the current buzzword to call it is an adaptogen smoothie. I've experimented with these a bit, and if you get the right combination of herbs and supplements in there, it beats the pants off a coffee any day. So most people think of herbs as this thing you use in your kitchen, but there's such a huge variety of plants, 
and they have all kinds of effects on you. Damiana is calming, good for anxiety, depression, and gives you sort of a bit of a happy high and gave us the name of our first company, the Happy High Herb Company. And mugwort, putting it under your pillow, gives you lucid dreams. It's a, such a wonderful world when you learn to control your dreams. And another one, Lion's Tail, that made me very joyous when I smoked it. I thought, why don't we know about this? And then I learned that you're not allowed. Damiana is, is phenomenal, and they've been trying to ban that forever because it is beneficial and in most cases will help people with depression. Damiana is obviously one of Ray's favourite herbs. It's recommended that you share some Damiana tea with your partner. Ray and I spoke about all sorts of things, but it's pretty easy to guess where our conversation went. Plants that have strange effects? Well, yes, the conversation moved to psychedelics. We got talking about a plant named ayahuasca, which contains dimethyltryptamine, or DMT. It's been around for a long, long time, but it's starting to make its way into mainstream conversations. The ayahuasca is trending and it's good that people, including executives of top corporations and politicians, are all undergoing that experience. That is good, but the better and far more focused experience is Changa. One, you don't have to worry about the diet or people spewing on you or you're spewing on somebody else or being sick and purging out every orifice. You, you, you just smoke it. And it was used to be called the businessman's lunch trip. And uh, there's no side effects but long-lasting effects. And providing you don't have more than once a month can be so beneficial. It can iron out all your personality wrinkles. So, um, yeah, and Changa can be dangerous. I know people who've used it every day and, and it's uh, dangerous mentally because you cannot process it all, you know. You can really hurt yourself by taking LSD more than once a month or ayahuasca or Changa for that matter or mushrooms for that matter. And people do because they've got issues, so they want to blast themselves away and forget about their problems. But um, you know, that's why I do believe all of these things should be prescribed and available. Just as a side note for those of you who don't know, Changa is a smoking blend of herbs mixed with DMT that when smoked will give you a much shorter experience than when you take something like ayahuasca. So it feels like we've ventured far away from talking about coffee but I don't really feel like we've gone too far. As I mentioned earlier, I think coffee narrows your focus, but I don't think it just helps you concentrate on getting a job done. I think it makes you focus in a way where it narrows your awareness. It blocks out a lot of feelings and understandings of the world. From what I understand about things like ayahuasca and changa, if used correctly, they do the opposite. There's a community or an intelligentsia of people surrounding psychedelics, and they refer to psychedelic drugs such as ayahuasca or changa as entheogens. They also use the term plant medicine. And there's a reason why. They aren't going out partying. They're using these mind-altering substances for more valid reasons that include soul-searching, spiritual fulfilment, exploration of consciousness, and healing. And the practice of using plant medicines and entheogens for healing... Well, these days, it's backed by science. And there's research occurring across the globe that proves how beneficial these substances can be. I spoke with Martin Williams, a pharmaceutical science researcher who mostly works discovering and creating antibiotics and antiviral drugs. 
Martin is one of the founders of an organisation named PRISM, which stands for Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, which is an Australian non-profit research association. PRISM was set up in 2011 specifically to initiate psychedelic medical research in efforts to have psychedelic medicine approved in Australia. And so it took us a number of years to get something through ethics, but we managed to pull everybody together with pledges of funding and an interest from Dr. Mark Ross, my collaborator and close colleague at St. Vincent's, to put a protocol together, put it through ethics, and then uh, go through all of the processes to get that clinical trial underway. And and, uh, we treated our first participant at the end of January. So we've actually treated two participants so far in, in that clinical trial. And then uh, we're planning to treat 40 participants in total. We've treated two, uh, but we've had to interrupt the trial because of the the health implications of the uh, COVID-19 challenge. So two participants have been treated and another 38, hopefully, to come in the next two to three years. And so, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, as you might understand, the... um, the, the trials take a period of time partly because of the, the time it takes to treat people, but also we, we have the psychological measures which we use to determine whether the treatment has been successful or not according to certain criteria. Uh, and so each of the participants will go through two psychotherapy sessions with drug or placebo, and then six months later they'll have the final psychological tests to see how they're travelling in terms of their anxiety and depression. The trial Martin is talking about is research on psilocybin, the psychoactive compound from magic mushrooms, and they're looking at how effective it is for treating depression and anxiety in terminally ill patients. It seems research like this takes a long time, and it needs funding and political support. Even if the trial is extremely successful, there's still a political process that needs to be adhered to. The political process involves uh, basically making a, a submission to the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Canberra. And if we can put a convincing enough case to that panel, then their recommendation would be to reschedule psilocybin, probably in the context of psychotherapy for, for specific mental health conditions. And then that probably would then have to go back to the various states in Australia to, to have their various poisons standards or their drug, drug standards reset as well. It's worth looking up what PRISM are up to. Go to prism.org.au. Psychedelic drugs might seem out there, or for hippies, but it's very apparent that organisations like PRISM are doing some really great research into assisting people with their mental health. Another great organisation to look up is MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. If you do even just a, a little bit of research, you'll see that there's a big conversation happening amongst people taking psychedelics. The modern human mind is sick and must be healed. Now, if this sounds like nonsense to you, then why do we have such a high rate of depression, PTSD and self-mortality? The conversation goes much further than that, though. People, when taking plant medicines, they're reporting that they're communicating with the spirits of the plants. They're speaking to all sorts of creatures. The discussions that they're having, I mean, sometimes they're nonsensical, sometimes they're about the individual, but often they're about the need for the human race to heal, and then in turn, heal the earth. I'd been trying to find ayahuasca for about three years, and eventually I got in the contact of a shady Irish hippie. Three weeks later, I was sitting in a Airbnb with an Italian 
African facilitator. Yeah, yeah. He was a cafe manager before he got the calling to pursue the spiritual life. And uh, now instead of coffee, he was serving ayahuasca. And I have to say his ayahuasca was probably the best tasting ayahuasca I've ever tasted to this day. <laughs> and so I drank it down. The first cup didn't do so much. So I got to the second cup. Everyone else was under, everyone was breathing really heavily and some lady was having some kind of orgasm in the background and I was like, no, I want what she's having. So I got the second cup and then I lay down and I saw, I guess, what I could really describe as like a series of high-speed cave paintings, like a flip book, whirring past my face and I saw this old ancient feminine sort of spirit figure come up and look at me, check me out. I assume that was the ayahuasca spirit and... Lots of crazy shit happened, but at the peak of the trip, I managed to contact what I believe was the guy in intelligence. We were pretty deep in a subtropical rainforest area, so I feel like we're pretty nestled in the bosom of nature. And I just saw her like a 3D hologram uh, rotating in front of me, like this big map of a holographic earth. And I heard her just go, help me. <laughs> and I was like, what? She's like, help me. And I'm like, what is this avatar or something? I, I guess I could describe myself as a scientific materialist up to that point. So this was pretty deep hippie uh, for me. And it just told me once more, help me. And then it just sort of faded away. And I thought, okay, that was interesting. And then it showed me all the times I'd been an asshole to my ex-girlfriends, but from their point of view, stuff I didn't even remember about. So the trip wound up and I was like, oh, that's pretty funny. Uh, okay. And I took that on board and I decided to keep drinking ayahuasca. So I had a, another experience with ayahuasca. It was my third time and I drank the brew and I went through what I could only describe as a full-on exorcism as I had the entity of my long-term depression extracted from my solar plexus in the form of a black cloud uh, that seemed to have some degree of sentience as I was yelling at it a lot and it was yelling back at me telling me that it wouldn't go and I was telling it that it had to go. I thought I was dying. It was very dramatic. Uh, it was a very full-on, intense experience. Um, and in the end, I had to strike a deal for the thing to be taken out of me. I'm not sure who I struck a deal with. I think it was the ayahuasca spirits or the spirits of, of light. And they said, we'll take this out of you on one condition. And I said, what's that? And he goes, well, you have to live less for yourself now. And you have to sort of join the good fight, I guess. It told me that the time for sitting on the fence was over and times were coming to a head. And sooner or later, I was going to have to pick a side who I wanted to fight for, the forces of light or the forces of uh, darkness, the, the time for the gray area of fence sitting was coming to a close. Um, so I thought, just get this thing out of my stomach, please. And so had it pulled out through psychic means by these spirits. And all of a sudden, I didn't have this sort of depression anymore. 
Following on from that journey, the ayahuasca told me, all right, well, you gotta live for other people, quipping such a self-centered asshole, go back to your home country and do some charity work. So I booked a flight back to Nepal and India, ended up doing a lot of charity work there. Uh, one of the places there was the Mother Teresa home for the destitute and dying. So I was in Kolkata in the slums and every day for about five weeks, I'd go in and help homeless people who were terminally ill I'd wash them, feed them. I also helped them die. So I was honored enough to be with a couple people while they passed. And so I was helping this man die. It was a very difficult death. I was doing a sort of form of Tibetan meditation where you're taking someone's energy on and clearing it for them. And just doing that where I was taking his energy on was throwing me into these sort of DMT flashbacks. So... I wasn't getting visuals, but I was getting this tunnel phenomena, like falling down a tunnel. Eventually he died and it was really crazy. And half an hour later, we we'd had him at the crematorium and he was pretty much, you know, cremated. So for 40 minutes from moment of death to cremation, he was gone. I was pretty shaken after this. I remember just stepping out of the crematorium and the veil was very thin between this world and the next. And I remember just thinking that everything was like um, cardboard cutouts, like everything looked like a set design uh, that was very flimsy and that could fall over at any time. And I was pretty morbid having witnessed a lot of death that day. So I decided to do what I planned to do before I helped this guy die, which was to see the new Star Wars. This is like the first of the latest batch with uh, the young girl. <clears throat> and so I was like, fuck it, I may as well see it. I was gonna see it anyway. And it's probably better than me sitting in my auntie's spare room, brooding about death morbidly. So I went to see the movie and, um, and uh, it got to the moment where Han Solo gets <laughs> murdered by Kylo Ren. <laughs> no one believes me when I tell this, but this is fucking what happened to me. And uh, the shock of seeing Han Solo <laughs> get killed triggered this schizo-mystical psychosis sort of state. It was a mystical state where all of a sudden I couldn't tell what was inside of myself and what was outside of myself. And I heard two very clear voices say, you work for us now. Remember what we told you. And then it proceeded to uh, give me a flashback download to my third ayahuasca experience where I had this entity of depression exercised from my solar plexus. And yeah, I, I downloaded all this stuff I'd forgotten to remember, which was basically that there was a war going on in the spiritual realms between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And the time to pick a side was coming up. You couldn't sit on the fence anymore. Yeah, things were coming to a head. And eventually it came to a close and I remember leaving the movie hall and things were even thinner after that. And I remember walking around this very swanky upscale shopping center in the middle of poverty stricken developing world country. But that's where the cinema was. And I remember thinking, oh, this is the empire. This, this, uh, this consumerist mirage, this is the empire. This is, this is the forces of darkness. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. I'm still uh I'm still treating this with a pinch of salt. Um trying to aim for a sort of conception beyond duality of light versus dark, but I guess that has stayed with me to this day about how I try and orientate my life. You've been listening to a story from Nick Sun, who you may have seen performing comedy. 
or you might have read his highly entertaining blog. I feel like we're now deep in psychedelic territory, so I'd like to finish the episode by going full circle. Remember at the beginning of the show I asked you to consider the idea that we might be living in a simulation? Well, while making this episode, I stumbled upon a website named actualized.org, which is the website of a man named Leo Gura. He says a lot of interesting things. I'm going to play you an excerpt from one of his videos, but I'll also throw a link to the full video in the show notes. The real breakthrough moment in a psychedelic trip is when you realize that there is no difference between a psychedelic trip and ordinary life, what we call material life. You are hallucinating right now. Everything is a hallucination. It's not that you take a chemical and then this chemical does something to your brain to cause the brain to hallucinate. And then you come back down to your sober state. And here it is. Here's the truth. Here's ordinary reality right now in the sober state. This is wrong. That's not what's really going on. What's really going on is that you're hallucinating right now. All of us are. And there is no reality aside from hallucination. A hallucination, technically, the definition of what a hallucination is, I use this term as a technical term. It's a very precise term. I'm not using it metaphorically. I'm using it literally and precisely. What a hallucination is, is its appearance without substance. If you wish to discuss this further or send me your thoughts, please get in touch. You can find me online or send an email to dan at danmchugh.com.au. Please don't forget to hit subscribe, hit five stars in the rating section of Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I can't thank my guests enough. Thank you to Emily Oak, Professor Simon Crow, Ray Thorpe, Martin Williams, Nick Sun, Leo Gura. A special thank you to Stephen McDonald and Tom Joss. I'll throw links and articles in the show notes, which will give you an opportunity to follow all of the guests up. Make sure you join me for the next episode of McUniverse, where we investigate meditation.